and welcome to Inside Your County Government, a podcast that brings you an inside look at the people and events in and around county government that shape your Charles County. I'm your host, Brent Huber. In this episode, we're talking weather with WUSA 9 meteorologist Howard Bernstein. Okay, so I know a guy. We'll just call him Jeff. Just Jeff. And Jeff knows our guest, Howard Bernstein. So when we were planning our preparedness episode, I went to Jeff to see if Howard would be interested in being on our show. Well, he put me in contact with Howard, and then hurricane season and scheduling went crazy. But we got back on track, and I was able to meet Howard at WUSA 9 Studios. We found a quiet office and had a conversation about weather being prepared, and the special place he has in his heart for Charles County. Because if there's one thing that connects us all, it's weather. Joining me right now is WUSA 9 meteorologist Howard Bernstein. Howard, welcome. Thanks, Brent. It's funny, when you're reading that, I was thinking I was on an interview once, and somebody said, why'd you get into weather? You can't avoid it. You can avoid sports and news, but you can't avoid the weather. Unless you live and work underground, you can't avoid the weather. But going back to when I was a kid, and I think most people uh, who are really into, uh, in my industry anyway, who, who are really into it, somehow found a love or fascination with weather as a child. And I grew up on Long Island on the North Shore, a place called Setauket. If you've seen Turn on AMC. Yes. Right. And I knew some of those places just growing up, and those names were very familiar to me from Setauket. That's where I grew up. And so Turn was kind of fun. But I remember being fascinated by snowstorms or thunderstorms. And my first instinct was always to put my face to the window to see lightning or heavy snow or, you know, kind of when Mother Nature gets pissed off, I get turned on. You know, to put it to put it simply, and it was one of those things. Even, and my wife will tell you, we started dating in high school. So if a thunderstorm was coming, I'd drive down to the beach to see it roll in, because uh, I like to see the stratiform clouds or, or just whatever was going on. The beach gives you a great view, and and so it was just one of those things. Always, I was, I was living in New Orleans at one point in my life, uh, working down there, and hail starts hitting the window. So I put my face up against the window with my hands on my forehead to kind of shield the, the light so I could see. Well, you ever look out a window at night to do that? And the second thought was, you know, if the hail breaks the window, there could be shards of glass in your eye. So I did reluctantly pull away from the window for my own safety, but it wasn't my first concern. My first concern is I got to see what's going on with the weather. And that's just, you know, you either have that or you don't, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that experience, that being involved in what's happening and really being able to understand what's happening. That's, yeah, well, just I, I definitely get that. But keeping your eyes open. I, I took the late bus uh, in junior high school. I was on a team. And, and unlike today, the late bus back in the late 70s would drop you off three quarters of a mile from home. It's not down your block. So you'd walk a little bit. And I was walking home. It was early October, and I noticed some wildflowers. And that's how I realized flowers don't just bloom in the spring. They can bloom in the fall or any time of year, depending on the species. And, and when I go to a school talk, I love asking kids, when do flowers bloom? And then I tell them that story. It's like, if you keep your eyes open and your mind open, it's amazing how many things you can learn or at least have some questions about to lead to further learning. But you've got to be open to what's happening around you. My fear is that so many kids today are buried in their, in their device, their smartphone, etc., that they're missing all of this wonderful world we live in, along with their 
struggling lack of interpersonal communications, <laughs> but there's just so much going on beyond the screen that they're not seeing. Absolutely, absolutely. As a meteorologist, as, a, as an on-camera broadcast meteorologist, what do you think your most important function to the community is? Well, the obvious, you know, got to get them the uh, forecast, but I think it's more of some now that everybody has smartphones and stuff, and they, you know, we in some ways have become a little bit obsolete in the daily stuff for a lot of people. But when the weather gets severe, I mean, when those black clouds are rolling, when it's about to hit the fan, you know, there's no way your phone can do what I can do. Uh, let's talk about that because that's kind of where I wanted to go. I want to talk about some of the messaging and why it's important. And is, is it too complex for people at times or is it complacency? No, I think there's a great misunderstanding or lack of understanding. Um, and I'm always amazed, you know, with some of the questions I get, which to me seem very obvious. But, yeah, there are some people who just don't get it. Or my wife's a runner. And she's saying, it's in the 50s. What should I wear? Should I wear long? Should I wear capri? I go, you've been running for over a decade and you haven't figured it out yet? <laughs> you know, and just to make fun of my wife because she's not here to defend herself. But she would tell you, yeah. So, so I still have to give that guidance. So I think it's not just giving the forecast. It's morphed into we need to, to communicate what the hazards are, what the risks are for people. Where it used to be, hey, it's just going to be, you know, rainy 50 to 55. Now it's like, it's going to be rainy in the 50s. So if you're going out to the soccer game or you have work to do or, or, or whatever, you need to dress in layers because that 50 to 55 with the rain on the wind is going to feel more like 40. So it becomes much more trying to explain what the, uh, what the facts are, factors of the weather, what the, what the weather is going to be like as opposed to just give a forecast. So it's changed in that regard. Getting back to what I said about the severe weather, let's say. Yeah. Um, when I'm looking at radar in real time, and I, thankfully I've had some experience in Oklahoma City and other areas which are real severe weather markets, there are things I can see and I can communicate, you know, maybe less than a second from viewing them if somebody's watching me live while we have a tornado warning or something, where your app, you might get the warning on it or... There may be a severe thunderstorm that's evolving into a tornadic thunderstorm that by the time the weather service issues it and it goes through whatever it gets to your phone might be a few minutes. Well, if a storm is moving at 40 or 50 miles an hour, a few minutes is a few miles. Absolutely. And that can be the difference between you being alive or you not being alive. And so this is where I think we have our greatest impact when the weather is uh, as threatening as can be. Nothing's going to beat a live uh, degreed meteorologist who, who can analyze the Doppler in real time and communicate the risk and, and, and tell you where that storm's going and what it potentially could be doing. Very, very, very true. So for, for what you do and, and, and the warnings for people, what's the best advice that you could give somebody? I think awareness. You've know, you got to know what's going on. I mean, if it's going to be a day where we have a threat of storms, you have to be checking often just to make sure and understand what the threat is. Some people get confused between watch and warning. And I've seen this great meme that uh, Brad Panovich, a friend of mine who's a meteorologist in Charlotte, does a great job. He posted a picture of baking ingredients, put the word watch over it. The, what, the picture next to it was a finished cupcake. He put the word warning. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, right, so watch is like the conditions are there, something could happen, warning means it's happening. Again, to me, I'm like, how could you not know the difference? But I know I think differently than a lot of people, so I have to be uh, aware of that. And, and again, we have to communicate. And when it gets to messaging, during Hurricane Sandy, 
there were no hurricane warnings north of the North Carolina-Virginia border because at the time, uh, and the Weather Service has changed that, but it's so asinine. The storm was going to be classified then as an extratropical or post-tropical storm, and storms have different classifications depending on whether they're not just a pure warm pour storm like a hurricane or more like the low pressure you might have learned in school with the cold front, the warm front, the low in the middle, the, the Norwegian model, as, as I think we learned either in late grade school or somewhere in junior high, middle school on that. So back in the time when Sandy hit six years ago, well, if it wasn't a hurricane, it wasn't a hurricane warning. And I went nuts along with several other colleagues saying, you know, the public doesn't give a hoot about the technical classification of the storm. It's irrelevant to the vast majority of the people. You know, just keep the warnings going because the threat is still there. And this is something that the Weather Service is going through, working with social sciences so they can increase their messaging. But they still don't always get it right because sometimes they get trumped up. They get, they get too deep into the weeds. Uh, we saw this past hurricane season with subtropical storm X. It's like, again, or, you know, the, the, the public doesn't care. You know, put a little note. And I, I reached out to the Hurricane Center on Twitter, and Rick Nabb, the former director, is now in, uh, at the Weather Channel. He chimed in a little bit, and we had the dis this discussion going. I said, why don't you just make a note in the discussion that it's a subtropical storm and just say tropical storm so that you're not confusing the vast majority of people who don't get it. Let's keep it simple for the public. You know, recently, they've also gone through a, a hazard simplification process. They got rid of freezing rain advisory, which really? I think was a big mistake. So now we have a, so the winter weather advisory for freezing rain. And my concern is, as somebody who I mentioned earlier, grew up on Long Island, I went to school in Albany, I lived in Rochester, any bit of freezing rain, I'm not going anywhere. A winter weather advisory, okay, I'm going out, I'll take it slow. Yeah, I'd rather have two feet of snow. A glaze of ice can kill. So I think by taking freezing rain advisory out, I think they've overdone it. That's one that, that you're whitewashing the hazard there, in my opinion, by trying to simplify. And they did have a lot of different things. And, you know, this is, this is an ongoing and evolving process. And, you know, I, I'll give my colleagues at the Weather Service credit for looking into it. And, and I'm sure the more we discuss it, perhaps freezing rain advisory will return someday. Now, when it comes to, when it comes to severe weather... Uh, this was this podcast was originally going to be part of our preparedness podcast, and September was preparedness month. So, can you give some advice on preparedness for severe weather events? Um, you always have to know where you're going to go and have that plan. Like anything, like like your fire plan, you got to know what it is before the severe weather hits. So, do you have a place in your house for one to hide, a safe place? Uh, my house is my basement. You know, and there have been times I've been at work, I've called home, and I've told my wife, my son is 18 now, but he's, he's, he's at school, but, you know, I'd say, hey, why don't you take uh, the boy and the dog downstairs for the next hour? You know? So, A, know a, where you're going to hide. If you're in a building, where's the safe spot in the building? If you don't have a basement, maybe there's a stairwell that's completely surrounded by concrete, but something really sturdy, preferably below ground, if not the lowest level of the building. So that's one. You have to get information. How are you going to get your information when there's severe weather? What if the power goes out? Is your phone going to work? Do you have a weather radio? I mean, what are you, what are you doing for that? And I'm talking about the short-term severe weather, right, whether it be right, a severe right. thunderstorm, tornado warning. Then, of course, if we get into uh, whether it be a blizzard or and we get affected by hurricanes here occasionally. Every so many decades, a bad one seems to take the wrong path and we're in trouble. 
So what are you going to do if there's a multi-day issue or a derecho event, whatever the case may be? Again, it's not a common thing, but, you know, are you equipped to go several days to a week without power? Do you have enough water in your house? Do you have enough dry foods? Do you have a generator? Is the generator on natural gas or does it need propane or gasoline? Where are you going to operate that generator? Because operating it anywhere but outside is uh, asking for carbon monoxide death. Yeah, you don't want to put that in your garage. No, and, and that's the thing. Within a hurricane or something else, when you choose, not, like the people who don't leave Mexico Beach, there are like a thousand ways to die in a hurricane. So why? All right, we're going to be right back after a quick break, and we're going to talk about Howard's connection to Charles County. Looking to know what's going on in the community? Want to get the latest news and discover incredible things to do in our county? Well, now you can, and have it delivered right to your inbox. Subscribe to Charles County Government's e-news and learn about special events and all the amazing things to do in Charles County. Visit www.charlescountymd.gov and click on the envelope to subscribe. Give you a little history. Uh, I started at Channel 9 in late 2000. So Sunday, April 20th, 2002, which was an off day for me, I uh, got on the clock at 3, well, 4 p.m. And uh, quickly we were chasing that day because it had that particularly dangerous situation, sort of tornado watch for us. And I ended up in Springfield, Virginia as the storm was passing. And I was kind of pissed because I had worked in Oklahoma City. And I was on the northeast side of the supercell, knowing that the southwest corner is usually where you're going to find the tornado. And I was like, man, I'm just in the wrong spot. And All right, but I went on air, I described what I was seeing, blah, blah, blah. And we had other people who were out chasing that day, too. And then the reports of the golf ball size hail or softball size hail started coming in from Waldorf. And then, you know, down toward La Plata. And then pretty soon after, and so we started making our way up over the Woodrow Wilson Bridge, down 210. And I don't even know what road we came in, but it was like Hawthorne at, at 6. So, so we came out on that street because south, going south, I don't even know how we got there, but we got there. And, and it, was, it was a scary night, even the ride. I and mean, that was evening. It was about 7, 7.10 when I left. So a few minutes after the tornado touched down, I got to La Plata by 7.50. So literally 7.45, 7.50. So within 40 minutes of touchdown, we got there. And, you know, I've worked in Oklahoma City. But it was the first time I'd ever been to, you know, a tornado strike very shortly after it occurred. So you had the steeple down on that church on the uh, southwest corner of 6 and, and 301. And there were people just wandering aimlessly. And about, and the fire guys are out trying to triage people. And I mean, it was mass confusion. And it was just, at one point, I remember the, uh, the trio of helicopters lined up on Crane Highway to do medevacs. And you could have that smell of that jet fuel in the air. You know, it was just, and this, this night never ended for me. Because I did the news at 11, I was on in the morning on Channel 9, I was on CNN, I was on the Weather Channel, I was on CBS This Morning with my story about what happened from the La Plata tornado. And I met Bill Ekman that morning, the next morning. And we walked past the water tower that was down by the lumber yard. And, and you know, I met a lot of really great people that uh, month, because I spent much of the next month going down every day to do tornado stories, whether it be down in La Plata, we got out to Hughesville and Benedict and a few other spots there. You know, the stories of the uh, 
the Amish that were coming up and helping to rebuild stuff, and they were wonderfully generous. And, and so many people, not just them, um, um, who's the gentleman, who the developer who set up the CBD and the, and the trailers? Um, Big developer down there. And I, I, uh, you know Fushina. Yes, yes, exactly. Fushina set that up, mm -hmm. and it gave those people, I believe, rent-free trailers for a year just so businesses back in La Plata could get up and running as quickly as possible. So you saw so much good come out of so much bad, and obviously the streetscape got redone. And while there was loss of life, so minimal, so minimal. And I think we were very lucky that, you know, Archbishop Neal's school, it was a Sunday evening, so it was yes. empty. And that it was a Sunday evening and not too late. There were still people who were out, and even if they weren't paying attention, when the sky turned black, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the middle of the night where people would have been in their beds and more mm -hmm. people would have been, you know, injured or killed. So I think it's remarkable that only five people uh, did lose their lives, and, and some of that was really ancillary, heart attack, et cetera, sort of thing. With that being said, so we're getting back to your initial question, the Potomac <laughs> River. The Potomac River on the west and southwest side of Charles County has this northwest to southeast orientation. So tornadoes, tornadic thunderstorms, there are quite a few things they need. I, I, they really need strong winds aloft that helps to create lift. Mm -hmm. but they also need what's called wind shear, which is a change of direction of the wind with height. So let's say the wind at the surface is out of the south at 5,000 feet, maybe it's more out of the west. So that change in direction, the bigger the change in direction, the more shear, the more likely you're gonna get a storm to spin up a tornado. So you have to generally have a rotating thunderstorm, which is the definition of a supercell thunderstorm, but not all supercells produce tornadoes and we're still studying why that is. And only about a quarter of supercell thunderstorms produce tornadoes. So, Anyway, getting back to the initial question, because of this orientation from southwest to northeast, no, from southeast to northwest, I believe the wind can be more channeled a little bit more from south to southeast. So if that adds a little bit more in the shear equation, that could be the tipping point, kind of like that game with the beans and the little barrel, the tipping point to make it go over. And that storm that did produce the tornado on April 28, 2002, well, it had produced a few funnel clouds out in Virginia. The tornado really didn't occur until it got toward the Potomac and then came into Western Charles. And pretty much that storm remained tornadic until almost Salisbury. That track was, I think, 68 miles or something. It went across the bay into, into Wacomico County. So whether around the D.C. metro area, including Southern Maryland, is it easy to forecast here? It depends. It really does depend. Like if we get an area of high pressure moving in, that's easy. In the wintertime, it becomes a much different animal because of where the rain snow line sets. And with the proximity to the Atlantic Ocean and the Chesapeake, Southern Maryland being closer than, let's say, Upper Montgomery or Loudoun counties, often we're dealing with the rain snow line across Southern Maryland. And, and that becomes an issue where uh, North and West, it isn't as much of an issue. So when we're forecasting snow, I like, uh, it's like trying to hit five moving targets at the same time. Okay, A, is it going to be all snow? Is it going to be snow and rain? Is it going to be a mix? And if there's a mix, how many hours of snow are we going to get? And how's that going to add up? And it, let's say I think there's going to be five hours of heavy snow, but it ends up to be three hours of heavy snow. I could be off by two inches, which may not seem like a lot. On the flip side, let's say we get five instead of three, then I'm under by two inches or more. So there are things, so that's one issue we have to deal with. So we've got to deal with the precipitation type and then how, how often or how many hours is it going to be one P-type versus another P-type? And then intensity. 
and then also temperatures because the colder it is, the fluffier the snow. So you could have the same liquid equivalent uh, from 20 degrees to 30 degrees, but 20 degrees is going to produce a lot more snow just because it's the fluff factor. So that's another thing we have to try to guess, all right, what's that ratio going to be from mm -hmm. snow to rain? And then what's the total duration of the event? Is it going to be 9 hours, 12 hours? So, you know, when does it start? When does it finish? Uh, and then things come down to, as far as the roads, right? What are the surface temperatures going to do? It's going to, and if it falls at night versus the day, better chance it sticks. Also, is it the first snow and there's no residual uh, salt or brine uh, on the road? So all of these things come into factors because, you know, if it's still snowing in 34, I'm going out. Right. You know, and then you have to, again, be aware of what's going on. What's the temp what are the temperatures going to do? And what do the, uh, the experts say about the roads? Your app isn't going to tell you that the roads are going to be wet or the roads are going to be white. That's another thing where human uh, interpretation is, is a much better thing. Tool, than tool the, exactly, yeah, than, than, the, than your app. Than the app. The app is generally taking model data and just outputting it. And my concern is that people look at the app, it comes hour by hour, and the expectation is that, oh, we can tell you to the minute what's going to happen. We can't. But we have data that says that, but, but you have to understand that just because it's data doesn't mean it's the gospel. It's guidance. It's a tool that we use. Yeah, but when it comes to snow, when it comes to winter weather, that rain-snow line, that can make a huge difference where that falls. And that's no easy Yeah, thing. and you know what? It can be off by 20 miles. And, uh, you know, think about the planet. We've got 25,000 miles around. 20 miles is a blip. But the thing about snow is it's so personal because everybody can go outside, stick a ruler in the ground, see how much snow they got. Well, 20 miles could put it on one side of 95 versus the other. Or one side of Charles County versus the other. This is true. You know? <laughs> and we've seen that happen. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where Waldorf is snow, but you get down. Uh, Cobb Island and Nansmoy have yeah. absolutely nothing. Swan, Swan Point, and they're, they're, they're playing 18. Yes. In the rain, but they're still playing. The diehards, that is. Yes. Yes, they are. Oh. All right. So on the subject of winter weather. I've read that the outlooks this year look like a above average precip and slightly above average temp. Well, temperatures are going to be the more difficult one. Right now we expect an El Nino, and depending on how strong it gets, and we've seen in weak to moderate El Ninos that we do well with snow. But if they're too strong, then we get flooded with moisture and warm air. But it's not just El Nino. You have to have stuff like this Pacific Oscillation, the North Atlantic Oscillation, the Arctic Oscillation, what's the QBO doing? There's so many different things that come into play. We are going to have cold spells, we're going to have warm spells. And if the cold just comes at the right time where the energy's coming up in the subtropical mm -hmm. jet, boom, you get a big snow. And we get the chance, living on the coast, for big snows. Because all that moisture in the Atlantic, and also the temperature difference between the Atlantic and the cold continental air mass, that it's called baroclinic zone. So the tighter that temperature difference, the stronger storm you can generate. Usually we get nickel and dimed around here with an inch of snow, three inches of snow, a little sleet, or, or, or a cold rain, snow mix, snow at the end. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't get the whopper storms all the time. For somebody looking to get into meteorology, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, I would go and get at least a master's degree at this point. Um, I don't know where broadcasting is going. It has evolved so much with uh, digital. And we're, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people wanted the forecast, they'd have to watch us. Now they can get it myriad places. 
as far as meteorology goes, and I have a degree in atmospheric science from the State University of New York at Albany, you know, obviously you gotta, you gotta know your math, your science, and your computers. You gotta, you, that's just, it, it's, it's sort of like an engineering degree. My son is studying engineering, and uh, he's taken math through differential equations. He's taken science through at least Chem 1. He's taken physics through, I think, physics 3 or 4. So a lot of the curriculum for his engineering was the same that I had for my atmospheric science. And then, of course, when you get into your upper level classes, you start to get your real specialty courses that, that are into your major. But if you can't do math and science and computers, you are gonna, you're going to have a tough time. I think if you have a passion for it, you know, you'll figure out a way to get through those courses. And uh, I'll tell you this story. I, I, I got a 750 on my math SAT, but I got three C's and a D in calculus. I took four Cal courses. And the reason I did, I was lazy. I didn't do the homework. I had the intelligence. I just didn't have the drive at the time. And it took that D to kick me in the butt. Because D, I'm better than a D. A D's a crap grade. So I still had to take differential equations. But the neat thing about differential equations is all of the physics and all the calculus came together. So between my own self-disgust, and I actually learned, I just didn't do the work, so I knew enough calculus, and, I, and I, I, I was just crushing physics. I'm the only person I know that got a D, D in calc to an A in differential equations. Right, and DIFFIQ is supposed to be the next level, yeah. the more advanced <laughs> stuff. So if you know, if, hey, if anybody ever comes across somebody who went from a D in their last calc course to an A in differential equations, find me. I want to meet this other person. Because <laughs> I, think, I think that is a unique distinction. Awesome. Uh, that I, I tell only because I'm proud of the A, not the D. Not the D, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So just remember this, too. Uh, that D, I earned every bit of it. I don't blame anybody but myself. And, you know, that's a thing from failure. Uh, or near failure anyway, you, you, you have to ask yourself, what did I do and what could I do differently next time? That's really good advice and really good advice to end. Howard, thank you All right. so much for doing this and being part of the show. Thank you. Uh, you know, again, I'll say I have a special place in my heart for uh, Charles County, La Plate in particular, due to the time I spent down there. And, and while it was a, a horrible first meeting that night of the tornado, uh, I have a lot of warm memories from the wonderful people that I witnessed, that I met, and the, the the warm gestures of generosity that I witnessed uh, in recovery and after since uh, the storm hit. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Remember, you can find more great podcasts online at charlescountymd.gov/podcast. Like this episode, then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We can be found under Charles County Government.